Tonight, millions, maybe around 100 million people in North America and worldwide, they're going to be focused watching a group of men battle it out to see who is the best in the world at what they do. Yes, yes, I'm talking about the Super Bowl. And the winner of this game is the all and above champion above every other team. And for a short off season, they get to revel in being the champs before they have to get up and try to do it all over again. Because the new season will have no champion and they have to fight for it all over again. But in between, in between, that team is the champions. And even the fans of those teams, they seem to claim and vicariously live with them in those moments, don't they? Whatever the teams that are playing this weekend, the, the team from Philadelphia and the other team from Kansas City, any of their fans afterwards, whichever team wins, their fans are going to go to work on that Monday morning wearing their jersey or their team paraphernalia, and they're going to be like, we're the champs, as if they actually played the game, as if they were a part of this wrestle of masses of humanity crashing into each other, trying to get a leather ball across lines. They're going to be a part of it, and they're going to be there like they were part of it. People love their teams, and it shows. But as love, when we consider what that means to love our team and to be passionate about something, it also makes us wonder, what does it mean to be resilient followers of Jesus and show our love? What does it look like to show that we're all in with God the same way some people will be all in with their sports teams? Because closeness with Christ starts with that realization that Christ goes first, like we talked about last week. He always initiates. He always leads. Every time we think we're taking that big, giant step or that little step in faith towards something, God's already taken his steps. He's already waiting for us in that place. He's the one that actually invited us into that place, invited us to take that step. He took the initiative. It wasn't us. We love because he first loved us. And so what would the expectation be from this God who goes first, this God who loves first? What is his expectation of our love? Jesus shared it in Matthew chapter 22. He said this, he said, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We love God with our heart, our soul, and our mind. And Jesus said, again, this is the first and greatest commandment. Do you remember where that first commandment that God, was, God had given to Moses, do you remember what it was? You shall have no other gods before you. Having no other gods before God. And what it means, what does that mean to have no other gods before him? 
It could be in the original language. It could be no other gods in preference of God or no other gods in his presence or no other gods that are in competition with him. We love God with all that we are. So having no other gods before him looks an awful lot like loving God with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind. And so maybe today you feel like you're on solid ground. You don't know any other gods. You couldn't name another god. You don't know who Allah is or Shiva or Buddha or uh, Brahma or Molech or Baal. None of those things mean anything to you. You've never served one, bowed a knee to one, been in a religion that involved one. So you think, you know, I'm safe. You think that's idol worship from another place or another time. But idol worship is real in our lives today. And it's something that's often behind that idol that people uh, put their hope in. They hope that that God can give them the thing that they actually worship, the thing that they actually put on that pedestal. They, they give an offering or an incense before a God because they want a peaceful trip. They give an offering or worship a God because they want a healthy family or they're looking for fortune or power. There's an endless list of things that people could be elevating as the ultimate God that they will make and put over everything else in their lives. Everything else bows to the purpose of that God. Now, in our culture, Beyond other religions that are, that are in our, our culture, it could be money, it could be power, it could be sports, it could be sex, it could be all sorts of things. And in that regard, we can see people in our culture are very religious because every day they bow their knee to the pursuit of that goal, that God, of elevating it above anything and everything else in life. And so what God was saying to Israel in that moment when he said, you shall have no other gods before me, he says it in a moment that they were coming out of Egypt, a land full of gods for every different reason. And they had been there for 400 years. And so the culture and the understanding of gods and worship of those gods would be very intrinsic to what they knew. And so he says... There's no room for idolizing anything if you want to follow me. I'm leading you out of that place. So today, Jesus says the same thing to us. The fullness of our hearts, our souls, and our minds must be engaged in loving God. So what does that look like? Well, this may be only for me, but... I put it in here because I liked it. In the immortal words of DC Talk, hey, let me tell you, haven't you heard? Love is a serious word. Hey, I think it's time that you learned. I don't care what they say. I don't care what you heard. The word love, love is a verb. Obviously, you're not down with the DC Talk. 
D -d down with the DC talk. Now, see, you're all lost on this. <laughs> that was truly just for me. Anybody else DC talk? You know DC? A few of you. Just none of you were going to break down in the down with the DC talk. D -d down. No, none of you? You're missing out. You're missing out. That was the golden age of music, I think. <laughs> well, maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> but in the Bible, we see that the word love it is both a feeling that we feel, but it's also an action. And this is true in our modern understanding of the word love as well. How do we love others shows up in how we regard and treat them. We can't just say, I love you, and then treat them horribly. There's no love in that whatsoever. We usually treat them with regard as well. And I mean, it's not just chocolates and flowers although that is coming this Tuesday, gentlemen. So you're welcome for that reminder. Deuteronomy 10, 12 says, our lazo actions, some of the ways that our relationship with God is, is expressed. And he says, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Again, he says for us to love him. So what does he require of us? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in, in all his ways, to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Doesn't that sound awfully similar to what Jesus said was the greatest commandment? When it comes to love, God had gone first. When it comes to loving us, we do so with our heart, our soul, and our mind. Love is both an action and that feeling. And actions can be fearing God. It can be walking in his ways. It can be expressing love to him like we did this morning in song. And it can be serving him in various ways. From God, who always goes first, what is the expectation of our love? As simple as this, his expectation is all. All. All of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. He wants it all. Because all leaves no room for another. Do you hear that? All leaves no room for another. Now, Jesus doesn't say uh, to love others with all. He doesn't say we have to love other people with all. He says that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. If there's a unique way in which we love God, it's different from the way we love other things. It's all-encompassing. And while we don't see all in there implicit in the first commandment that God gave Moses, it's there in its meaning. You shall have no other gods before me. I am all that you are to worship, nothing else. We often, though, want more clarity. What do you mean by all, God? Define that better so I can understand. Because all is a small word, but it has a big meaning. When you say all, what is all? all actually mean? What's included in all? I know it sounds simple, but what is actually included in all? And to answer that question, we can read an exchange that Jesus had with someone who's asking that same question. And as a, again, as we read through it, pay attention to the word all. Mark 10. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good 
except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not, bof- do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your mother and father. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have a treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Lovingly, Jesus says to him two things. You have a love, a love that comes before God, to which you have given your all to, his possessions. They ruled his heart. And he says, because another has your all, you also won't be able to love your neighbor as yourself. Because you couldn't give it all away to other people. He had to keep it all for himself. Do you notice how when Jesus goes through the commandments, he doesn't say, you shall have no other gods before me. He leaves that one out. He lists a bunch of the others, but he leaves that one out. Why? Because that was the very issue that the man had. He put wealth and influence and money above God. God goes first. God expects our all. And our all is a lifelong pursuit of putting our love for God before all others. I think one of the most challenging things that Jesus said about this was in Matthew 10. It says this, or not Matthew 10, and Luke, Luke 14, sorry. It says this, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? And so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Again, how can we truly love God and not renounce all to be his disciples? If we're going to love him and be his disciples, then we need to renounce all. We need to hate all, like he says here. And no doubt, that is probably one of the most staggering things that Jesus says in his ministry. What does he mean by hate? Isn't Jesus supposed to be the gentle one, the meek one, the mild one? Isn't he, doesn't he come bearing peace? Didn't Isaiah, the prophet, prophesy that he would be the prince of peace? And he's asking us to hate? Jesus said the world would know us by our love for one another. How is this possible that the same Jesus is asking me to hate my wife, hate my children, hate my parents? When Scripture tells me that's the very people I'm supposed to love, I'm supposed to love my wife, love my children, honor my parents... It can be confusing, can it? How could he possibly, what could he possibly mean with this ultimatum? 
And if we look closer at the surrounding context, the meaning of his challenging words become clear. They're radical and revolutionary. Jesus is telling his followers that if you would be a resilient disciple, a resilient Christian, he must have it all. We may be offended by his hate speech, but because we're focused on that word hate there, we miss the clear warning that Jesus has for us. That there's going to be rivals for your heart, but our love for King Jesus must defeat each rival that rises up. Jesus' similar words in Matthew 10 may provide a key to understanding what Jesus means in there, what hate means. Because in Matthew 10, 37, he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Of course, we're supposed to have deep affection and love for our earthly relationships. But Jesus is saying that we must love them less than we love him if we prove to be his disciples, to prove to be worthy of him. Ultimately, he is saying, in order to love your family and your friends in a most holy love, it must flow out of a greater depth of love that you have for God. Jokingly, through our marriage, and yet serious at the same time, I would always look deeply into Ingrid's eyes and I would stare at her. And it'd be one of those moments where you think you're going to like express some deep, profound love and things like that. And I'd say, you are the second most important person in my life. (laughs) And we'd say it jokingly, yet serious. And part of it was for both of us to be like, listen, in order for us to do this well, Somebody else needs to come first. If I'm going to treat you the way I need to treat you, somebody else actually has to be more important to me. And I want you to know that I'm putting God first so that I can honor you the best way I should. And that should be at the the heart of all of our relationships. How we love others is based only in how we love God because it's in his love that we can truly love others the way that Christ loves us. He's not demanding that you literally hate your family, hate people. He's using hyperbole to illustrate the steep cost of following him. Anyone looking to be a follower of Jesus must be glad to give up everything to follow him. Without reservation, to sell it all, to have him as your highest treasure, like the parables talk about. The man who sold everything to buy a field because there was a treasure hidden in it. Or the man who found a great pearl and he sold everything in order to buy that pearl. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's what it's like to be in love with God. Our devotion to Jesus must be of such an intensity and quality that by comparison, all other loves seem like hate. In all, Jesus gave three serious truths in Luke 14 about discipleship. A resilient disciple, a resilient follower of Jesus must love Jesus more than your earthly family. Must take up your cross and follow him. 
must be willing to lay down everything, even your life, to go hard after him. And there's no, perhaps no more vivid explanation or illustration of this than found in Genesis 22. God gave Abraham and Sarah a child when they were senior citizens. The long-awaited son, Isaac, was the one through whom God would build a nation from whom another son would be born, Jesus, that would redeem all of mankind. But God did something. He invited Abraham to place his loving God over the gift that had been given to him. He told Abraham to take his boy to Mount Moriah and to sacrifice him as an act of worship. Something that our minds in today's culture cannot even comprehend. The act of doing that. We can't imagine it, let alone comp- contemplate what it would be like. Would Abraham love the gift that God had given him, his son Isaac, more than the giver? Now, Abraham would trust God, and he would pre- God would provide a substitute, a ram to sacrifice in Isaac's place. And it gives us one of the clearest pictures of the gospel in the Old Testament. Abraham's faith, seen in his obedience, points to what Jesus is driving at in Luke 14. Yes, your spouse and kids and relatives, they're good gifts from God. And he loves them and wants you to love them. But who will you give your ultimate heart to? Who will you give your all to? The gift that God has given you or God himself? And if that is what Jesus is driving at in Luke 14, 26, how then should we live in light of it? I think there's four things that we should consider. And the first is this. The true gospel demands that we count the cost. You must count the cost. There's no cheap grace. Jesus says three times in Luke 14, if you don't, you cannot. If you don't love me before others, then you cannot be my disciple. Following Jesus demands our heart, our soul, our mind, all. Otherwise, Jesus said you cannot be his disciple. So we must accept the cost as Jesus explained it to the rich young ruler. It was love that drove Jesus to unmask that young man's hypocrisy. He hadn't kept God's law because he was guilty of loving his wealth more than God or his neighbor. Number two, following Jesus does not guarantee an easier life. Now, if you read Psalm 16, it surely speaks of a profound joy in following Christ, that there are pleasures forevermore at his right hand. But if we hear the message of Luke 14, we must also embrace that your trouble may be just starting when you follow Jesus. As one preacher put it, a Christian must be willing to offend even his family rather than offend his king. Think of the many who've been disowned by their family, their parents after spurring, uh, spurning Allah or Buddha or other faiths in favor of Jesus. 
They've given up everything in order to say, Jesus, you have my all. There's very little in our culture that's making that demand on us. Choose us or Christ or else. But the call is still the same for us to give him everything, no matter what. I'm sure on his way to Moriah, it's doubtful that Abraham thought in that moment that, man, I'm living my best life right now. There's no way he thought that. It's not a badge of honor that we live in these moments, but evidence of a humble surrender to our coming and future king over the immediate ease and pleasures of this world. Number three, holding on to Jesus loosens the grip of even the most intimate earthly relations. Potentially losing your family members or friends is heartbreaking. Being, being disassociated because of your faith, it can be really hard. But even so, we can rejoice in Christ because we always have him. And he must be enough because nothing else matters. Living open-handed everything that is not truly ours Leaving it before God allows God's fullness to become ours. The fourth thing, they who trust him wholly find him wholly true. Can you imagine Abraham's journey up that mountain? He's just as human as you or I. He is no less human. He's just as attached to his child as you would be to yours. The obedience must have been agonizing for him. Yet he trusted God when it seemed impossible. God was his provider. He will be yours as well. In the early church, they, they pressed into resiliency in following Jesus, counting the cost. And they experienced exactly what we are talking about. In Acts 2, 42 and on, it says this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, any, as any had need. They were all in it together. What they had, their possessions, all of their earthly belongings meant nothing in the light of having Jesus. And if it came to their possessions or serving the greater good, they gave. Day by day, attending to the temple, together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. When people, when people experience the love of Jesus through a community, they experience God in such a real way. And if we want to see our church grow, it doesn't take 
better sermons necessarily or better worship or more instruments up on stage, although we love more instruments. None of those things are going to bring in more people to understand and know God's love. What brings them in is our radical love for each other, how we'll stand with each other through anything and everything, how the love that we have for God gets expressed in the love that we have for others. What happened differently in Acts 2 than in Mark 10? In Acts 2, they counted the cost of following Jesus. They followed Jesus with their all by placing him before others, which in turn placed others before themselves. And in doing so, exactly what Jesus said would happen did. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When we love God with our all, when we love, when from love we place him before others, because where we don't, or when we don't, we've already lost, no matter how much we think we gain. The writer of the hymn, I Surrender All, his name was Judson Van De Vieter. He knew he was a music and art teacher who also felt God's calling him, God felt God calling him to surrender his life to God's plans and purposes. And after wavering for about five years between working on becoming known as a music artist or an visual artist and stepping into ministry as an evangelist, he finally surrendered to God. And at one of his first meetings that he attended and was, was talking at, he penned the words that would become a well-known hymn around the world. And partly even through Billy Graham, who as a student would go to his house when he was retired to learn about God and worship with him. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his presence, daily live. Each of us comes to defining moments where God simply asks, who comes first? Who is all and above in your life? Will we surrender the worldly pleasures, the controlling desires uh, over circumstances, the power to put ourselves first? Will we surrender our families and our loved ones? Will we surrender our brokenness to him, the side of us that feels disqualified from having a more resilient faith? Today, on a regular day like any other, God asks if we'll surrender it all. Not for a guaranteed return on our investment, but for the simple fact that he is God Almighty, Lord of heaven and earth, our loving Savior. Whatever you have to surrender today, God is waiting because he's gone first and he wants you to put him first. As we sing this timeless song, let's give it to God. I invite you, if you need to surrender anything to God in this moment, either your life, things that you've put before God, things that have challenged you and kept you from coming to God with everything, 
I challenge you and invite you, find a place to surrender today. If you need to come to the front and pray, you're welcome to do so. If you want to find a spot in your, in your seat to pray, please do so. But just surrender. If you're watching online and you need, need to surrender, find a place at your home to do so. Type in the, the chat that you surrender. But take this moment to say, God, you have my all. You are all and above. You are everything. God is calling us as a church to have him as all and above. Will you let him do that? Let's surrender to him today. God, we surrender to you. We lay down everything and anything that could come between us. Holy Spirit, come. Lead us to repentance. Put on our minds and our hearts the things that maybe have crept between us and you, God. But lead us to repent and put you first in front of everything else. May you have all of our love, all of our worship. We surrender to you, God.